Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Church, as we continue to endeavor into the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, let us not forget this great summary. The first couple commandments are to fulfill what Jesus describes in the first great commandment, which is to love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. That's why we don't make idols. That's why we don't have graven images. That's why we uphold God's name and we don't take it in vain because we love God. But Christ followers, excuse me, Christ follows up this first commandment with the second great commandment, summarizing everything else in the Ten Commandments as loving your neighbor as yourself. What we hear this week regarding murder, what we heard last week with honoring your father and mother relate to this. You want to know what it means to love your neighbor? Lean in this morning. Read God's word. Apply it to your life. Not only does do not murder fall under this second great commandment given by the Lord, but Christ also describes the Ten Commandments as summarized in the first and the second great commandment as being somewhat of coat hangers, if you will, for the rest of the law and the prophets. You want to understand the Old Testament? Understand the Ten Commandments. If you get the idea of loving God and loving neighbor, things start to fall in place. And if you under, excuse me, the thing that's interesting about this and what's also notable about this is notice the young man that asked the question, a religious leader, a lawyer, a Pharisee. And the whole reason why Jesus is talking is because the Pharisees had gathered together after Jesus had thrown down with the Sadducees. They were there to ask a question. This religious man seeking to maneuver around Jesus, to trick him, to show dominance, to supersede his authority. Christ humbles him with his answer, his mastery of the law. Brothers and sisters, in this short section of Matthew's Gospels, though we see the summary of what we're going to be reading with murder, the story includes Pharisees, and that is us today, this morning. We are the Pharisee that's gathered around the law of God, looking to see how close we can get to disobedience. What does it really mean? I think I've got it covered. Matthew's gospel takes a particularly heavy knock at the religious community, writing, that this, writing this work to first-generation Christians and local churches, uh, you know, version 1.0, And he wants his readers and to inform his readers that the Pharisees didn't die 
They didn't go away. The church is the second coming of the Pharisees. Pharisees 2.0. And as people who are within God's covenant community, we are particular, we are particularly tempted to be okay with a particular form of righteousness. As we look at this text in the larger teaching of Scripture of do not murder, I want to murder the thoughts that we have in our minds when we read, don't murder. I'm, and I'm guilty of this. I'm not a murderer, so this will just be kind of like a doctrinal recalibration, just an intellectual exercise. Or, I'm not an angry person, Caleb. On the contrary, my best of friends and my spouse, believe it or not, thinks that I'm very patient and soft-spoken. And I'm a kind person. So this commandment is more so for that person or this other person I'm thinking of in our, in our community group. As an exercise when I feel or when the Lord graciously reveals more authentically that I'm being self-righteous, I ask myself in light of the two great commandments, Caleb, are you loving the Lord your God perfectly with all your heart, soul, and mind? And if I'm honest, even in this moment, am I perfectly following the law of God? No. I need the grace and mercy of God right now. Am I loving my neighbor as myself perfectly in this moment? No. I am in need of the grace and mercy of God through Christ. Our need, brothers and sisters, is ever-present and never-fleeting. And what I'm not trying to say here is that we're just a bunch of religious hypocrites like the Pharisees. But what I am saying is that when I opened my Bible to prepare for this message, I was really, really quick to saying, Caleb, you got this. You're good. Move on to the next commandment. You're, you're, you're doing, you're pretty righteous. And I'm saying that is our attitude when we're enjoying in, in the covenant community of God as the church, that is a temptation and a particular form of righteousness that is not, it's not authentic. It's not, it's not real. What I'm hoping to convince you is that the question of the perfection that Christ demands and commands us to have in the Sermon on the Mount, the righteousness that's supposed to exceed that of the Pharisees, it comes from a realization that we need the grace and mercy of our Lord. If you want to love your neighbor as yourself, this isn't some kind of exercise program, some kind of moral reform. It is a, it is, <laughs> we are poor in spirit. And Jesus says this on Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, blessed, he calls them, are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the attitude and perspective we ought to have approaching this text. This text is so much more than just a mere prohibition not to kill someone or, hey, just deal with your anger. It's the prizing. It's the honoring. It's the upholding. It's the protecting. It's the giving of life to others. It's no less than the fulfillment of this second great commandment. The heart behind the commandment is to love others because God loved you first. This morning's text comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. 
Hear God's life-giving words, kindly addressing us this morning. You shall not murder. The point of today's sermon is very simple. God's people, God's people uphold the lives of others by giving life rather than taking life from God's image bearers. That God's people uphold the lives of others by giving life rather than taking life from God's image bearers. The outline, simple three-point sermon, the prohibition of murder, the protection and promotion of life, and lastly, our need and the hope of the gospel. I just want to skip point one and two and go there. So let's jump into point one, the prohibition of murder. Moses uses one of seven words for the word murder that we find in our text. This command has implications to several areas of life and to ethics. It has political implications and judicial practices that we could apply. But out of the seven words that are used for this word for murder, Moses chose one particular one, one of seven. So this is reason 900 why you looking at original languages is somewhat helpful. Because that word that Moses uses excludes that of judicial killing, so death penalty conversations, and that of civil services such as military or law enforcement, just war theory stuff. So, whoo, I don't have to talk about that this morning. If you have a tough, like a really tough ethical question about just war theory or the death penalty, Matthew would love to talk to you <laughs> after the service. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, I'm kidding. If you, if, if, if you, if that's, I will, if you're, if you're really struggling with those ideas, love to love you, love to lean in and give life and answer those questions. But I'm going to ask you a couple questions before that. How did God through his word by his spirit teach you, correct your thoughts, inform your affections and make Christ glorious in this text before I start talking about the apologetics and the philosophies of just war theory and the death penalty, though those King Jesus has dominion over that as well. But the point of this text is that we would be changed when we leave those doors because God's spoke to us. He gave life to us. The idea behind this Hebrew word for murder is firstly that of unjustified taking of life. Unjustified taking of life. That's what we would classically put in the the category of murder or homicide. But this also includes the idea of manslaughter. So the unintentional taking of human life. Unjustified, unintentional. The point that we're going to get to in a moment, maybe you're like, man, that's like, why would you regulate accidents? That sounds, you know, a little, a little much. That's a little legalistic if we can go there. The idea, if we're guarding life, if we're protecting life, upholding life, in a sense, we, we, it, it is, we're protecting it. So in a sense, we thank God for crosswalks because that is a means to protect from the unintentional death of others because people are texting and driving and, or whatever. 
that manslaughter is also included in this. We don't want people to unintentionally die, so to die. So our culture is to think intentionally and anticipate the needs of others to prevent harm to them. It's not only just don't murder, you know, when, when someone does something. It, it's more than that. It, it, it's more than just you have your space and your freedom and I have mine and I won't cross your box. You don't come into my box. It, 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 religion... Christianity, the salvation that Christ has called us to, is so much more deep than some post-it note that says don't murder. It's complex. It's life-giving. It's based off of love. The third idea that's behind this idea of murder is that of self-murder, what we would call suicide. In a world that frames this category as a person who is a victim of suicide over the historical definition of committing suicide, Scripture sees this as an authentic, real choice with ethical implications. God's not prohibiting you from something that you are a victim of, but rather something that you have authentic choice to obey in. Caveat, not saying that those that are dealing with depression that have suicidal suicidal thoughts aren't dealing with something that is very real and doesn't need to be dealt with. But the, the context, again, what this is prohibiting us from, you're not a victim, according to scripture. You have a choice, an authentic and real choice to obey. So what did this mean for Israel and for us? It means that you're not to unjustifiably take the lives of others, unintentionally take the lives of others, and you are not permitted the choice of self-murder. And we see this, the heart of this command and the actions that are prohibited are just as relevant for us today because remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, my favorite sections of Scripture, Christ came to abolish the law. No, he came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill the law. And out of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated. The Sabbath is not, because Christ is the Sabbath, murder is. And we see that Christ expounds on this. He doesn't deepen it. Again, it, Christ, Christ lets us know the heart behind God, God's character behind this prohibition. It wasn't, all right, you guys did well with that test on don't murder. Let me just ratchet it up. That's always been God's heart to honor and love life. That instead of leaning in with a knife, we lean in with a loving hand. We lean in to other people. We see this in the command repeated in Matthew 5, verse 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother You hear the heart behind that? And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly, quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What we see in the New Testament in this text is that murder 
is a matter of the heart, and the heart of murder is hate. True righteousness is a righteousness that externally and internally matches. Externally and internally matches. When it's a whole person righteousness. That's what, when I say that when we, when we are striving to not be angry or not murder, so what, you didn't kill him, you're killing him inside your thoughts, your, your affections are. You think that, you think in that moment that the world and yourself would be better if that person didn't exist. Christians, not a pharisaical righteousness that's just external, but you're a tomb on the inside. But an authentic, when you ring, if it was a bell, if I rang the bell of your externals, it would be the same tone, same pitch, same note as the inside. Whole person righteousness. When, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect, the idea behind that is wholeness. The idea behind that is a whole person righteousness. When, when Christ says to the broad and the narrow gate, although it does apply to those that, you know, the world going to hell in a handbasket and then the church that Christ is saving, the idea is actually about true and false righteousness, an external righteousness that's just a game, a facade, a hypocritical external religion righteousness, the one that the Pharisees had, the word for broad in Matthew used only one other time, talking about the tassels of the Pharisees later in the gospel. And then there's the narrow gate, And the narrow gate's tough because, again, we're ringing the bell of our externals and our internals. Our our heart is matching our actions. Our natural depraved state as human beings is to not love our neighbor. And as much as our culture would like to say that, that we're all just innocent bunny rabbits inside and that we're being opposed by external forces and institutions that are making us hateful. Scripture is very clear. Our heart from the fall of man in Genesis 3 is that we are bent towards self-love and hatred of others. That's the starting point. And I think a healthy summary of this command and what it means in light of all Scripture Summarized in a succinct form can be found in the Heidelberg Catechism, which in three questions asks, what does God require in the sixth commandment? That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor by myself or by another, but that I lay aside all desires of revenge. Also, that I hurt not myself, nor willfully expose myself to any danger. Wherefore, also the magistrate is armed with the sword to prevent murder. The second question. But this commandment seems to only to speak to murder. In forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors the causes thereof. Sermon on the Mount. Such as envy, hatred, anger in the desire of revenge and he and that he accounts all these as murder the third question here hear the false righteousness of the pharisees being asked in this question but is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above can i just check the box can i be good today as we hear a sermon on don't murder no 
For when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness towards him and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies and that we do good even to our enemies. Do you know the verse that precedes the command to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect in the Sermon on the Mount? Let's look at it together. Matthew 5, 43. In light of loving our enemies, you have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore, you therefore, in light of this, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let our righteousness, let our love, let, let true Lord give us true righteousness that we might love our neighbor and image you as image bearers as we love others. Because God, God throws rain and he throws sun on the righteous and the unrighteous. And here I am, Caleb Collins, going down the street. And if I love you, I'll give you some sun. And if I hate you, you better believe it, I'm gonna give you some rain. That's not our call. The Lord of life calls us to give son to our enemies, to love our enemies. Because our hope isn't found in, in, in what tax collectors or, or the Gentiles here mentioned. Our hope is found in something greater and what God defines as good, not what Caleb defines as good, not what you define as good. It's not according to our culture what they define as good. Therefore, when we read this command, brothers and sisters, God is telling us that to know him and to follow him in these commands is to not hate our neighbor. It's not just murder, Hate in our thoughts, through our desires, and by our actions. And that murder at the root is hatred. So if God's law demand that we don't touch the wet paint wall, where, where are we supposed to go? God always, he doesn't just say, cut it out, stop it, don't do that. He always is offering, I use this with evangelism class. He, don't eat at Waffle House, come to Ruth Chris over here. Stop doing this because there's something so much more valuable over here. And that's what he's calling us to do. Point two, the protection and promotion of life. What is being guarded is the value of life grounded in the image of God of whom every human being bears. That's what we're guarding. And what's being promoted in hate's place is the love of neighbor. The reason why we cherish and honor and uphold and protect the lives of our neighbors is because they are made in the image of God. All persons, without exception, 
are image bearers, and thus they have value and dignity and worth. To be made in the image of God is to be made for relationship with God. God didn't have relationships with, with, with golden retrievers the same way he made for humans. And we were made to represent God. When we properly relate to God, we image him. People can see what God is like when we relate to him through Jesus Christ. When we're poor in spirit. Contrary to a pharisaical righteousness of let me just put on an outfit. Let me just make sure that I've got all the cultural check marks. I go to church. I am, am, am married and I'm nice to my wife. I haven't murdered anybody. Therefore, Therefore, put in the blank, whatever it is, what we find, how we image God is through nothing else but the grace of God through Jesus Christ, empowered by his Holy Spirit. That's the only way we image God properly. But every person, regardless if they are a believer or not, is made in the image of God. So therefore, Christians take this, take this to the bank are the only people on earth ever to be able to say authentically with all integrity that every person has value, dignity, dignity, and worth. Our culture, our culture sees people as valuable based off of their actions, what they look like, where they came from, how much money they have, how useful they are to me, and so on. But Christians believe that people have the uncompromising value, impervious to change, because they bear the image of the Lord of life. The rich, the poor, the homeless, politicians, prisoners, Muslims, stay-at-home moms, unborn children, the elderly, those who identify with the LGBTQ plus community, pedophiles, Nazis, racists, and bigots, rapists and murderers, vaccinated and unvaccinated persons, policemen, teachers, citizens, and immigrants, social justice warriors, MAGA Republicans, mean parents, hurtful or wrong spouses, jerk bosses, the guy who is actually wrong by being going 30 miles an hour in the left lane, the friend that betrayed you, the abuser who was never brought to justice, those who are guilty of murder, those who have had an abortion, those who have had an unethical IVF procedure, a person who has committed suicide and left a spouse with kids behind. There's a slew we can say about any one of these groups or persons, what it means to love them, their demerits or their merits. What does it mean to be as shrewd as serpents, as wise as serpents and innocent as doves? But one thing Christians have never said and uncompromisingly proclaim is that every one of them was made in the image of God and thus have value, dignity, and worth. That, my friends, is a heresy of the culture, but it is the very heart of the gospel, that the good news I do not withhold from any person. My job is to call and to throw seed of God's word, the good news that your sins can be forgiven and that eternal damnation can be avoided if you would bend the knee and turn from idols to the living God and treasure him through his son, Jesus Christ. Give up the false righteousness. Be poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is yours. Omathuna helpfully writes in his article on this idea of the image of God in the Pentateuch. He says this, that the Pentateuch upholds the lives of men and women, 
slave and free, Israelite and foreigner, born and unborn, to be of utmost value. Each is an image of God, to be respected, protected, actively loved. Again, we don't hold out the knife. It's more than just, I'm just going to avoid this person. Scripture calls us to lean in and love. This requires an attitude towards our neighbor of of pushing the personal space bubble of those around us. After God flooded the earth and made a covenant with Noah, he reiterates the creation mandate of go and be fruitful and multiply. But he also gives a prohibition against murder. And he kind of gives some new ground rules that if the T-Rex can catch you, he can eat you, but you can eat him. And then also, if you murder, that there's justice. And Genesis 9, 6 says this, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. What's the reason? For God made man in his own image. The value comes not from something subjective. It doesn't come from your utility to me or because you're in the same camp as me or same little community as me. It comes because of the truth the creator proclaims and instills in every man, woman, and child whom he made in his image according to the scriptures. This means that Christians lean into loving neighbor at all stages of life, all walks of life, that we give life, protect life, uphold life from cradle to grave. And that'll make you very unpopular today because we love talking about life in one area and we love talking about life and maybe in this area and this person usually doesn't talk to this person. But Christians, we live in the kingdom of heaven. Our citizenship and the rules of our king You don't tell me where the bounds are. Scripture does. King Jesus does. And Scripture proclaims because of the image of God that we all bear, that we fight, protect, uphold, cherish, lean, give life to the unborn child and to the elderly that nations want nothing to do with because they're a burden. To love someone this is a helpful def. I'm not, I'm not preaching a sermon on divining love. That is way too much. One helpful definition of what love is, one that I love to have, ironically, uh, is to look out for someone else's eternal betterment. To look out for someone else's eternal betterment. So to love someone, calling a wayward saint or a beloved member of our church to repentance is looking out for someone else's eternal betterment. Calling a sinner to Jesus Christ because of the realities of their sin is love because we're looking out for their eternal betterment. Anticipating the needs of those in our church, praying for those who are about to walk into surgery is love. Praying as a church is love. Love, encouraging one another mutually after the service is love. Valuing the less fortunate in our community through the food pantry is love. Giving bread to make much of the bread of life. CG leaders prayerfully leading groups through discussion questions is love. Being more concerned about the lives of others is love. Talking less and listening more The list goes on. Love in this passage is the antithesis of hate. Again, 
rather than leaning in with a knife, we're leaning in with a hand. We, in light of this command, living in a culture of death, are to be the salt and light that testify to the worth of all life in a Christ-centered manner. That's important. Because the church does not just herald life because we're merely against death, though we do care. And the church does not herald life from the cradle to the grave because, again, we're trying to implement some kind of moral reform program um, that, that's going to make life better for our communities. The church treasures all life in a sin-sick world because God in Christ gave our sin-sick soul a life b- abundant through the work that was declared finished on the cross. You want to follow this commandment, brothers and sisters? J.I. Packer informs us so well here. Only restraining and renewing grace enables anyone to keep the sixth commandment. We lay off the old, hate in all its forms, and we put on love, but only, but only through the grace of God in Christ and through his spirit which brings us to the glorious point of our state and the hope of the gospel. If we hope to properly understand and apply God's word as declared here in Deuteronomy 5, it must, must be Christocentric. Christ must be the dead center of our understanding of this application. It's not just a mere perspective change. It's not moral reforms. We are, if, if we do that, we are trading the righteousness and the robes, the glorious robes of Christ and, and all the benefits of our union with Christ for rags. We're trading Ruth Chris for Waffle House as much as some of us fancy Waffle House and I'll, I'll be there from time to time. For, for us to get to Christ, for us to get to Christ, for us to get to the cross, we have to see our need. We must see our need. Which brings us to James 2, verse 10 and 11. James says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So church, the posture we ought to have when we read this text in Deuteronomy, the posture I should have had when I first read this text and dismissively said, I got this, let's move on. Rather than a posture that I, rather we ought to have a posture of great spiritual need, especially in light of James 2, with any of these Ten Commandments. Because all you're doing is playing hopscotch, you know, and like as you keep throwing pebbles down, there's more things you can't jump on. You're eventually going to trip. And if you trip on one, you've tripped on all. Our need, contrary to our natural inclinations, it qualifies us for salvation. Think about how the gospel, in the gospel of Matthew, um, how Christ sits with tax collectors and with sinners. And the Pharisees just couldn't understand why. I love that story. It's one of my favorite ones in the gospel. And what does Christ say to them? Go back to the prophets and learn what compassion means. Go back. And so who was it that Christ had mercy on in the Gospels, generally speaking? Was it the religious leaders who kind of put on their, their, church, their church gear? Or was it, was it me, a sinner? It was the sinner. It was those that were poor in spirit. And brothers and sisters, 
Our righteousness is unimpressive. Our righteousness, when we choose to stand on that leg, is like the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's a false righteousness lacking integrity. Because as James 2 describes, if you've broken any of God's law, you're not a righteous or good person. Those don't exist. They don't exist. And so maybe you're sitting here and you're, you're visiting our church and you don't know the Lord. You would say that. We are, we are ecstatic that you are here. It is a joy that we can serve you today, that we can offer hospitality, and we pray that we're doing it well. But if you come with the idea that you are a good person or that you, you can, you've done some commandments well and maybe not others, James describes that if we've broken one of God's law, we've broken all of God's law. And if we are lawbreakers, then we're transgressors against God's law, which makes us, according to God's standard of righteousness, unrighteous. Romans 1.18, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So if we're unrighteous, unrighteous in God's law, what's our hope? Every person in this room at one point currently or in the past was under God's wrath. The difference between those under wrath and those under love is not a workspace righteousness. It's not moral mustering. It's not just try harder, do better, be more. Chase your dreams and, 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 and find your own niche area of good. It's not workspace righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. And by alien, I mean foreign. It is, a, it is some, some, somebody else's righteousness applied to your lack of righteousness. That's what the gospel is. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord, you stand on your own merits before God under judgment. You, maybe you have not sinned in anger, wink, wink, and you're good. But you've broken one of the commandments, which means you've broken all of the commandments. And God's wrath is there. And as, um, as it's been said before, both of his hands are up right now. One hand, God bids us come to repent and turn. And with his other hand, he, he holds back this wrath. And there will be a moment, brother or sister, my friend, that both of his hands are going to drop. And that offer will no longer be there. And God's wrath will pour forth. And you are playing. You are gambling with time. Today is the day that you should turn. Turn from your sins because not only does God's law show through the Ten Commandments of do not murder or any one of them that we are unqualified and teaches us, the law teaches us of our need, it also thoroughly proclaims a Savior in Jesus Christ, that you can trade your sins for his righteousness. You don't have to wallow in God's wrath this morning. God's free offer of salvation in Christ is offered to you. And all you must do is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Get off the throne of your life, ruling your own kingdom of sand, and come kneel before King Jesus and accept the invitation to be a beloved son and to commune with your creator for all eternity. The church family, that's not only the gospel message that we proclaim, it's also the daily reminder of our need for Christ. We never move past the gospel at this church. We're a gospel-centered church. 
and thinking about what Jesus has done impacts my life today as a Christian. The same miraculous grace that moved us from death to life through the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the same grace that gives life abundant through the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ability to love your neighbor as yourself, to turn from inward self-love and outward hate to a healthy distrust of self and a selfless love of others. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. To love others, you must know God. And when we understand who God is and what he's done, being moved by what the Lord of life did and conquering death on the cross, we love others. God's grace comes to fruition through visible, loving hearts of his people. Our affection for God is directly correlated with our affection to others. If you're lacking love, or if you love for the wrong reasons, the question is, do you know the love of God? Like what Matthew said, if your team wins the Super Bowl like mine did, that'll come out in your emotions. If you love God and his love has been poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit, you ought to be loving people. It's not legalism. I'm not saying love people and then God pours out his Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is that saved people enamored by the love of God love people. Grace precedes it. There's no legalism. The Bible calls us. Christ prepared for us good works. 1 John 4, 19 through 21 says this, we love because he first loved us. We love. Notice the state of That's happening. We love. It's normal. It's not up for debate. It's happening. We love because grounded in God's love. If anyone says, I love God and hate his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There's no doubt people here who are discouraged or beating themselves up for not perfectly following God's law. This is a moment where, where Chris prayed for spiritual gifts. If you have a, 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 a spiritual gift of encouragement or a prophetic gift, this is, this is think and pray right now for those in our midst that you can encourage with a word of encouragement, with scripture, for those that are discouraged in, in, in thinking that that they're not good enough for Jesus or the gospel or that God's mad for how they're acting. I want to encourage you, for those that are discouraged, to pause your deep reflection on what your hands and your mouth are doing. And instead, I want you to lift your gaze to God through his word and behold him for who he is. One of the most fascinating, if you guys know the podcast, um, Ask Pastor John, where John Piper takes questions. One of the most fascinating ones I've, I've ever heard um, was a man writing in who was struggling with an addiction. And, and he was he's just like, what do, I, what do I do? I fought and I fought and I fought and I'm discouraged, discouraged, discouraged. And John Piper uh, talks about how he was discipling another young man with the same addiction problem. And his, his um, counsel was to, to, to buy Grudem's Systematic Theology book. And say, read it from cover to cover, and you won't struggle with it. Now, if you know John Piper, you know he's not a legalist. And you also know that that's not his, like, you know, his card that he always, hey, listen, you're struggling with a problem? Try reading theology. The point that he was making that I think is profound 
because it, it goes against what we usually try to do when we're struggling with something. Instead of looking at our hands, what, what John Piper was saying was, if you treasure God for who he is, if you really see God for who he is, and you're enamored by the love of God, that love will show in your actions. And so, brother or sister that's discouraged, I pray that someone encourages you this morning. I pray that the Lord through his spirit encourages you and uplifts you and frees you from the shackles of some works-based righteousness. I want you to see what God's done through Jesus Christ. And for those who would say, you know, well, you don't know my mother-in-law or uh, <laughs> like I'm struggling with anger and I have good reason to do so. I hate police officers. Philippians 4.8 is God's gift for you. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As we deal with people inevitably that we don't like and that do us wrong, we are going to be challenged to whittle them down, remove their image remove the image of God in them, make them a monster, and squish them like a bug. And what Scripture says, rather than tearing down, we are to build up. We are to look for evidences of grace, of God's grace in their lives. And I want to encourage you this week, as you do this endeavor, encourage that person with those evidences of grace because they likely are not aware of it. It's common in our culture to write people off because they hurt us or because they believe differently than us. How quick we are to put people in categories and again, whittle it down. In our world today, you're encouraged to be anger and to be embittered, to hold malice in your heart towards persons or groups because you are the victim and they are an oppressor. In a world today, we're encouraged to a pseudo love, a love that is out of self-interest. But church in closing I hope you see that the Lord of life calls us to something far more beautiful, something far more great, that we rise above hate and false love. And as John 1 says, the command that we've been given is to love, and we love all persons without distinction, without exception, because they are made in the image of God, and because while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. When God lacks his proper place in our lives, when, he, when we resist his gracious rule in our lives, there are many good and justifiable reasons to hate somebody. But when we realize just how kind God has been to us in Christ, lives change. Oh, how our lives are different because of God's love. May the Lord of life bless your life as you lean into the lives of others in love. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we love you because you first loved us. We thank you that our greatest need, our sins have been forgiven, and that out of the grace you've given us, Lord, you've commanded us to lean in and to love others with that same grace. Lord, would you please convict us of areas of hate in our heart, and Holy Spirit, would you in, in its place remind us of your love and empower us to love through encouragement. May this time after service be an encouraging time of leaning into one another, praying for one another. Lord, again, would you, would you grant spiritual gifts of encouragement, prophetic words to, to persons and people for those that are discouraged or fighting the good fight against anger. 
make Christ glorious to us that we might love our neighbor. Here I pray, amen.